Hey, I just want to take a second and just a minute actually and just say how proud I am of you guys and how just delighted and really proud in a great way I am of our community. Uh, here's just a few things that we've been able to do. Uh, many of you guys know we've really tried over the season of Easter tide to exercise generosity. As part of this uh, response to resurrection and the Easter season, we've just been saying we want to do good with our money and we've made some commitments. So over the last couple months, here's what we've been able to do. First of all, um, we were able in March to give $150 towards Compass Basketball. Basically what we did with that is there was a great fundraiser that was going on for Compass Basketball and we were able to provide the prizes for that. And because of that, I think they were almost able to double the money for that. So our $150 in prizes as a community that we gave turned into, I think, $300 for their ministry in uh, Compass Basketball through Youth for Christ, which is phenomenal. Then... Over the month of May, we were able to give $600 to the Meals from the Heart campaign through the Ronald McDonald House. Well done with that. We were able to give that right out of our budget. And many of you guys uh, participated as we baked and did some cooking and brunch for the people at Ronald McDonald House. We will share more over the next little while, bring an update uh, as to some of the things that we did. But thank you to you guys that were a part of that. And we were able to not only provide brunch, but we were also able to make uh, a, quite a large contribution to the Ronald McDonald, Ronald McDonald House there to help them help some families with stay there, which is amazing. And so we were able to do that 400. Then we also gave $200 to our friends at Mission Possible Canada who are here with us sharing about um, their ministry and their work in Haiti in the DR. And then the other commitment we were making is we were committing to giving anything that came in in our monthly budget in May away, anything over what we needed. And so if you don't know, we're trying to do things super simple here. We just have a vision, a simple vision as a community to do things simply. And with that, it, we're hoping it enables us to give away and be super generous. And so we're, it's looking like we're going to be able to give another $500 away to local outreach uh, in the city, which is amazing. And so there you go. One of the things that I feel we feel like is happening is that it's happening. Our vision to be this community of people that is generous and does good is actually really coming into fruition. And so thank you to you guys. I'm super proud. I'm also excited because as somebody, and I don't mean this in an arrogant sense, but as somebody who puts a lot of money into this community and believes in it, it's super joyful to be a part of something that's doing good. So thank you to you guys. And we're going to keep you up to date. We're going to do a little highlight of our spring outreach and bring you up to date uh, on some things that we'd like to do over the summer as well to continue to exercise this stuff. But I think I went to Bible college, so I'm not great with math, but I think that's like close to $1,500 over the last few uh, couple months, last number of weeks have been able to go to local outreach and stuff right here in the city outside of ourselves. And that's amazing. And one of the things where you know this, if you've been around, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're just simply trying to come 
come alongside other organizations that are doing good in our city and in our world. And we just feel like that's important. So well done. And thank you for joining in with us on our week to week giving here at Praxis. Now, with all that said, we are in a series in the letter of Ephesians called A New Humanity. And if you want to grab a Bible and turn it, up, turn it on or open it up to Ephesians chapter two, you can do that and uh, follow along with us. Now, if you've been around the teaching for any point of time in our, the life of our church, you know that we continue to use this phrase, nothing is in a vacuum. And it's so true. And we're going to find this again today. And when we say nothing is in a vacuum, basically what we mean is what we read a lot of the times in the New Testament through Jesus' teachings and then through the letters of Paul and so on. A lot of the imageries, the sights, and the sounds are deeply connected to the Old Testament and what it's leading us to. What we get in the scriptures is one beautiful, big, unified story. And so sometimes we'll come to things in the life of Jesus or in the writings, again, of Paul. And there's all sorts of imagery and things that are charged from the Old Testament. And so that's why we don't really want to disconnect those things. Certainly, there are... Um, the, the New Testament is the fulfillment of the old, and we begin to see that Jesus begins to fulfill this in his life and his teaching and his ministry. But I just don't believe the Old Testament is something to be thrown out. It actually lights the story on fire in a good way to help us understand what Jesus has done and what he's doing. Now, with Ephesians 2, most of you guys know that Ephesians 2 is a very popular, it's a very, very popular chapter in the Bible. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, because we had church in the park last week and it was phenomenal, great time. But um, two weeks ago, we started in Ephesians 2 and a lot of the imagery and a lot of the writings, if you grew up in the church, you've heard uh, significantly. We read these texts a lot, and it's going to be the same here in the second half of Ephesians 2. But you know what's interesting? A couple of scholars have said something that I think we really need to think on, and it's this, that Ephesians 2 in many ways mirrors the Old Testament chapter of Ezekiel 37. And some would argue that what Paul is doing as a good Jewish writer and now a follower of Jesus, is he's taking something from the Law and the Prophets, and he's mirroring it now in his New Testament writing. If you don't know, Ezekiel 37 is a chapter in the Bible where Ezekiel, the prophet, gets a vision by God of a valley containing a number of dead bones. And this is very popular, actually. A lot of people know and have heard about the Valley of Dry Bones or Dead Bones. And this is actually a picture to the prophet of the nation of Israel. And it's an image for them and God showing them that this nation will be actually brought to life again through the power of God's desire for the redemption and their resurrection. And so there's this vision in the scripture in, in Ezekiel 37 of these dry bones coming to life again. And really it's a foreshadow. It's, a, it's pointing ahead to resurrection and the new earth and the future age that is to come. Now, what Paul does, though, is he takes Ephesians 2, and he's now expanding on Ezekiel's national vision, because obviously Ezekiel in the Old Testament had a national vision for the people of God, Israel. But now he's taking this vision, 
and he's writing and trying to communicate a cosmic vision, just like Ezekiel 37, but making it cosmic now for all people and the entire human race. And so we get his imagery early on in the letter. And if you remember, just from a couple weeks ago, Paul is very clear that you were dead, but now you're alive. That salvation has come on you. It's breathed life into you. It's like you were walking zombies without Jesus, but now his spirit is within you. And the ultimate picture we get is that salvation is a gift, a free gift of grace that comes through allegiance to Jesus. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about faith, but probably the better word in English that we get is allegiance or loyalty, that we're saved by grace through faith. And we talked about the different dimensions of faith um, and what that means. If pistis, which is faith in the Greek New Testament, if pistis is better seen as allegiance or loyalty, it means a couple things. Certainly it means mental affirmation. It means believing in our heads, but that's not all. It also means professed allegiance with our mouths and then obedience to the king of the universe, obedience to what Jesus says as cosmic king. And so Paul goes on, you're saved by grace through faith and then goes on and says, listen, you guys are God's workmanship and you're created for good works that you are this, these people that have been brought from death to life and now you live this out. I think Mark Roberts puts it best when he says this, grace doesn't leave us untouched. It leads to new creation, new community, and a whole new way of living. Beautifully put, I think. And remember, grace, even in its original context, and we did talk about this a couple weeks ago, grace is reciprocal. That gift giving in the first century always requ- required reciprocation. Seneca, I think, put it best that he talked about grace being like playing a game, game of catch. You receive and then you reciprocate. You receive and you reciprocate. So we're saved by our allegiance through this beautiful gift of grace. And this is really good news. This, this is the gospel at work. This is really important stuff for every single Jesus follower to wrestle through. And there is that individual dynamic that we hope everybody, a part of our community, as you listen today and as you're here listening to this, that you would respond, that you would respond to the life that God is offering through Jesus. But Ephesians 2 doesn't just deal with like individuals. It also deals with the corporate dimensions of salvation. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to read a text and uh, we're going to read the text here, but I just want, you know, I listen, I know you come to our gatherings and you're probably thinking about the Raptors game or what you have to do on Monday morning to get ready for even tonight, what you have to do to get ready for your week or waking up in the morning early. And I know that there is a lot of dimensions in our teaching where we talk about a lot of the Jewish stuff that is important to how this story makes sense. And I know it's easy just to come in and it's easy just to kind of sit and to listen, but actually what's going on here is really, really important. And I want us to lean in, you know, oftentimes we'll have people that will visit and they'll come up after, and they're just thankful that we peer into the story in deep ways. And we look to how the large narrative works together. But often every once in a while, I'll get somebody that comes up and they're like, dude, they're from another church and or whatever. And they're followers of Jesus, but not a part of our community. And they'll come up and say like, guy, why the Jewish stuff? 
And there's a sense that what they want is something for their life, you know? I don't know if it's like advice or, you know, teaching on how to have be a better disciple or a better husband or wife or whatever. And there's there's room for that. But I actually, again, and I've already said it, nothing is in a vacuum. And I think we need to think deeply about how these things come together. And one of the things we need to think through is we are dealing with ancient Near Eastern documents that were written to a particular kind of people, the Jewish community, God's people. And now we have a Jewish Messiah who is the son of God, Jesus. And we have a Jewish writer who's now trying to communicate this to Gentile people years later. We have to lean into some of the imageries and some of the things um, some of the the covenant even that they were leaning into as a people under God. And I know it's easy just to go, oh man, it wouldn't it just be easier just to talk about, I don't know if you're single, like how do, how do I get a date? Or, you know, how do I raise my kids better? There are moments and times for that, but I do think we actually need to lean into the depths of this. So let's start to read. With all that said, let's start to read Ephesians chapter two, verse 11. It says there, uh, it says this, therefore, Remember that formerly you are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Now, welcome to church. Here we go. It's it's Circumcision Sunday. All right. Paul goes on. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now, you read this and, you know, at a surface level, it's true. Paul is talking about the coming together of two groups. And here's the thing. We are Canadian and we're pretty polite people, aren't we? A. And certainly racism rears its head everywhere, all over the place. This is the human heart. And we see this. But as Canadians, it's kind of true. We're kind of polite and we're diverse. And so what's going on here can, because we're quite a welcoming country, and I would even say that because Praxis is a pretty welcoming community of Jesus followers, we can feel like this is lost on us. Because we're hearing words like circumcised and uncircumcised and what is going on here, right? We think of circumcision and just like, what, what, what the heck is going on? And the two groups that are being divided and what Paul's vision now is for them is actually a really important work of what the gospel does. And so again, we need to, we need to listen to this. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, you can ask your husband or wife beside you. I think you probably do. Or you can just ask your mom at home later. I'm not going to get into that. But it's true that when you go back and you read the story of Israel, it's true that circumcision was the sign of a covenant made by God with this guy named Abraham. And the promise was is that Abraham would have this 
incredible community and family that would come out of his line that would be a light to the world, God's chosen people. Now, it's clear here in the text that uncircumcised was actually a derogatory term that Jews would use to describe Gentiles or people out the people who weren't Jewish. Now, it's lost on us. I've already said this, but it's lost on us a little just at the hostility between Jew and Gentile. Like there was deep, significant hostility, tremendous hostility between Jews and Gentiles throughout the ages. And there is no difference in Jesus' day. And there's some deep things going on here. And if you know anything, this really messed with the early churches, actually. Really, when you sum up Paul's writings, he has to deal with the tension and division that's going on between Jew and Gentile. And just put yourself in the shoes of each group, right? So, for example, you got to think through just what is happening here in the story. The Jews are waiting for a Messiah and a promised one to come for so long. And then that promised one comes, but now that promised Messiah is coming and the whole story is unfolding that this would be the one for everybody, Jews and Gentiles, those who are God's people in the Old Testament and those outside. And so there's confusion. And then you get this way in which the Messiah comes. So instead of empower and aggression and setting up, you know, taking out the Romans and setting up his kingdom on earth forever, like a lot of Jews thought, this Messiah comes and he comes in really, really unique ways. He comes in love. He lays his life down and he gives his life for others. And so there's all sorts of hostility in the first century between Jews and Gentiles, all sorts of mindsets about the opposite group and what was going to happen to them. And even think, and it's kind of lost on us again in our kind of framework because we don't have this kind of hostility. But I mean, even for Jesus to meet, like in John 4, to meet a woman, uh, a Samaritan woman at a well, I mean, we just read it and go, yeah, I mean, that's part of the story. Jesus just welcomed everybody, not realizing how unthinkable it was for a Jewish rabbi to even be talking to a non-Jewish woman. Like, we don't feel the weight of it, but we should, because that, in its context, is unthinkable. And so there's crazy, crazy tensions here between these groups and even more tension as the Jesus movement begins to evolve and really take root because you got to remember the Jews had a completely different way of understanding of how they thought the story was going to unfold and now the Jewish Messiah is for everyone and they're having a hard time. I mean, just even just read the book of Acts at points, right? There's a story in the book of Acts where there's this Roman guard, this centurion guy named Cornelius, and he's obviously, as a Roman guard, he's a Gentile, he's not, he's not a Jew, and he turns to Jesus and his entire family is baptized into Jesus, and the early church, the early church here in Jerusalem is having a hard time reconciling this and what they're to do. So much so that if you actually read in Acts chapter 15, they have to have a freaking council deciding whether or not Gentile people, like Gentile males, if they came to follow Jesus as Messiah and Lord, whether those Gentile males would have to be circumcised to be in the church. Isn't that great? Like, 
don't let that be lost on you that there was division here and that there's some crazy things going on here. I mean, I just, I think it's hilarious. Think about like the, you know, we do these welcome to church parties and introducing people into our community. Imagine at the end of like discover praxis, we tell people go through discover praxis, but then at the end, by the way, there's just one thing you got to do. You got to be circumcised. You can go to the back room and, you know, we'll take care of that. I'm ma- I mean, it's, it's humorous in, in our kind of in our framework, but I mean, just how crazy this was and this is. And just to remind you that they did come to a unanimous decision by the Spirit that Gentiles could come into the family of God and they didn't have to go through some of these, these outward markers that a lot of people, a lot of Jews thought they would have to do. And uh, the question sometimes people ask is, is why circumcision? Honestly, there's all sorts of ideas around this. I spent a bit of time just reading some stuff. I tried to watch my search browser a bit. Um, anyways, anyways, yeah, it is what it is. But I do know that uh, I'm not really sure. I mean, there's different opinions. You know, there's initiation rites from other nations in the ancient Near East and other nations doing things. And now this was maybe the thing that set the Jewish community apart. At any rate, it was the sign, the outward sign of the covenant and there's tremendous, by the time we get to Paul's day and Jesus and Paul's day, there's tremendous hostility between these two groups. And this is what Paul says. He says, for he himself is our peace who made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So here's what, here's what Paul is saying. Paul wants to remind this group of people that because it's primarily Gentiles that he's writing to in Ephesus, he wants to remind them that they were outside the covenant. They were outside this covenant that God made with Abraham and his people. They were outside the blessing of God's people. And so actually in the text here, he uses five really strong phrases and words to show the Gentile people that they were outside the covenant. So one, they were separated from the Messiah. So Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who fulfilled Israel's story and the Gentiles are on the outside of that. Two, the Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel. So they they weren't members of that family. Three, the Gentiles were foreigners or you, you may get this language in your particular translation of the Bible. They're strangers and aliens of God's promise. Four, they're without hope because Paul believed that hope was confidence in a future reality and without resurrection and trusting in the Messiah, you are that, that future reality is hopeless for you. So the, the Gentiles were outside of this hope that was given. And ultimately five, Paul says that the Gentiles were without God. I mean, these things, he's trying to shape a picture here. It may seem negative, but he's trying to show the people who are going to receive this letter that, listen, this was actually the story. You were outside of God's covenant, outside of God's blessing. But here's what happens. Verse 13, he says, but, but you're brought near by the blood of Jesus. You as a community, yes, you're outside the covenant, but here's the good news that God isn't just saving individual souls That's part of it, individual salvation. But corporately, he's brought the Gentile community and made a way for them to be brought in by the blood of Jesus. This word brought near is actually an interesting one. 
Because if you know the story of the Caesars and Caesar, one of the ways that Caesar ruled is it was said of him that he would bring people, bring other nations or bring people under his rule. Brought near was actually a term, and I think Paul is using it to throw down on Caesar, but brought near in the Roman Empire was a term attributed to Caesar. It was something he did. Something through the Pax Romana, if you know, where Caesar was bringing his rule, the rule of the Roman Empire, all over the world. But here's the problem. Here's the thing. What kind of blood was shed for the Pax Romana? Think about it. What kind of blood was brought for these nations and these other people to be brought into the uh, Greco-Roman Empire. It was the blood of their own nations, right? If you don't know, Caesar did this. He brought peace through violence. Caesar brought peace through the sword. Caesar brought peace through the bloodshed of other leaders and authorities by bringing other people in. It may have seemed peaceful, but there was a lot of violence on the way to Caesar ruling over these nations and ruling as the emperor of the empire. Now think about what Paul's doing here when he says that these Gentile folk now are brought near by the blood of Jesus. Think about how upside down that is. Instead of bringing the nations near by the bloodshed of others, what does Jesus do? Jesus brings them near through the shedding of what? His own blood. This story is so upside down and so counter the way any earthly principality or power would rule. Jesus, Paul says, listen, Jesus brought us near by the blood of the Messiah. How crazy is that? And then he goes on and says it was his purpose to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. That Jesus brought us near and what he's doing is he's bringing these two groups together as one new human, one new humanity is coming, one new community is coming together as the people who are now marked not by ethnicity, but now marked by allegiance to Jesus. Every nation, tribe, and tongue can come in under the allegiance of Jesus. He's making the two groups one. And notice, he's not making the two groups the new Jewish community. Or he's not making the two groups now the new Gentile community. It's one new humanity. One new humanity. This is what Jesus has done. And so it's not just individual souls being saved. One of the things the gospel does is it brings these two groups together. And you may sit here and think, man, well, I don't really have any hostility towards anybody. But just think, most of us in our community are Gentiles outside of the Jewish community. How good news is this for us as people? This is incredible news. And so think about it. Jesus came to bring down the walls of hostility. And we live, even today, this morning, as we were setting up for our gathering, there was some joking about just the wall. You know, right now we live in a a culture and in a moment where the world wants to build walls. But Jesus is bringing down the walls in this text between Jew and Gentile. And ultimately what God wants to do is he wants to build bridges. Humans want to build walls. God wants to build bridges. You know, I don't know know if you know this, but really the meaning of the word priest, the meaning of the word priest is bridge builder. Maybe some of you guys don't know that, but 
That's ultimately, if you want to nail down what a priest is, a priest is a, a bridge builder, a great picture um, of what a priest should do or a pastor, you know, but priest in this case, a bridge builder. And just think about it for a second. Who is Jesus? Jesus is our great high priest that is do that did exactly what Paul is saying here, bringing us near, bringing down the walls of hostility and building the bridge to humanity. He's the representation of God to the world. And just think about it. We're not off the hook as the church, right? Because what was Israel called in the Old Testament? They were called a kingdom of priests. They were to be these, that that was ultimately the goal of Israel. And they failed miserably in the Old Testament. They were to be these bridge builders to the world. And now what does Peter say of the new humanity of the church? If you read him first Peter, the church now is a royal what? A royal priesthood. We are a community of priests. We are called, just as Jesus, the great high priest, was this bridge builder. You and I are now called to be these bridge builders. And so Jesus brought down the walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile, bringing the two groups together as one humanity, bringing us near, all of us near, through the shedding of his blood. How beautiful is this story? So the first part we get here is the, of the smashing of the breaking down of walls. But then it says this in verse 17, he came, Jesus did, and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near for through him, we both have access to the father by one spirit. Then he goes on. Consequently, listen to this. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostle and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone in him. The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So check this out. Jesus is not only the one who crashes down and breaks down the walls of hostility. He's also the one, and this is what Paul is saying, and this is so deeply connected to the gospel. Jesus is the one that rebuilds the new humanity, this new group of people as his new temple. So he smashes down the wall of hostility and now he's building back up us, those of us that trust in him and give allegiance to him. He's building us as the temple of God. This is crazy. Because if you know anything about temple language, the temple was like the epicenter of worship. There's a place in there called the Holy of Holies. We talk a lot about this, but oftentimes, well, once a year, there was a high priest that would go and atone for the sins of the people. The temple in the first century was the place in which trade and commerce, all sorts of worship, everything happened for the Jewish community. And now Jesus is saying, I've brought down the wall, through Paul, Jesus is saying, I've brought down the wall of hostility and now I'm building a new temple. And this new temple is not brick and mortar. It's not some fancy, shiny place. But this new temple is you and I. 
It actually says here that Jesus is the cornerstone of that temple, the one holding us together. We are now the building of God. And it actually says that this is the place in which God dwells. Jesus broke down the walls of hostility, but now he's building up the new temple. And that new temple is you and me if you trust Jesus with your life. This story is unbelievable. Now, here's, here's what I experience in our moment, in the cultural moment we live in of individual, individual, you know what I'm saying, individuality and autonomy. A lot of people want the presence of God, but they don't want the people of God. And I'm just not sure this is how this works. Because Paul says here, this new temple is actually where God dwells. Now, don't get me wrong. I think you and I, and Paul says this in other letters, that we're, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and it should be treated as so. But you and I, the picture we get, you and I are bricks in this temple where God dwells. And I just meet a lot of people that want the presence of God without the people of God. And that's just very, that this is not how this works. God dwells in us. The community of Jesus, the church now is the place in which God dwells to make his manifest presence known. He tears down the walls of hostility, the things that were dividing Jew and Gentile. Everybody is welcomed in to become one new humanity. And that new humanity now is the temple of God where his presence and his spirit dwells. So for some of us, especially in Welcome to London, Ontario, Canada, you know, just this place that's pretty chill and relaxed, in some ways conservative and, you know, in a, in a community that kind of lives for the weekend and loves the weekend and loves to be an individual and everything now all around us is pushing us to be autonomous. It's actually the church. It's us together where God dwells. And I believe as we come to the tables, this is a moment and a place and a space where God works among us to dwell within us. And so just be reminded, brothers and sisters, as we come, that this good God is not just into saving souls. That's part of it, into saving us as individuals. Certainly, that's part of it. But it's so interesting, the corporate dimensions and the corporate reality of what happens here. We are united together. And we are this new humanity in Jesus.